Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Highland Ridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala. Today, I'll actually be teaching on the second part of Genesis in our seven-week Torah series. And so if you aren't familiar with what the Torah is, it is the first five books of the Old Testament. It is the law. It's the teachings for the Israelites. We're going to focus in today on four patriarchs, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We're also going to look at how, despite repeated failures by these four men and others, that God is still faithful to his promises. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you for joining me. Let's jump in. Okay, so what you would have heard, if you could hear it, I don't think I had it loud enough, but uh, those were the songs for the Night of Praise Easter that we're doing next Sunday. And so I got the opportunity to try and pick out songs that sort of embodied Easter, and we're actually going with this kind of Easter and the gospel thing, tying the gospel into Easter, which is not that hard, kind of is the gospel. Uh, but also starting back with God and God's creation and how that links into uh, the events of Easter. So the question I want to ask to get you started, and this, there is no like wrong answer here, there's no like hidden question here, but is what do you think of when you think of Easter? What does your mind go to? Eggs. Eggs. Good answer. See? I wanted an honest answer. That's not a, that's not a Bible class answer. Eggs. That's that's first thing. First thing. Thank you. What else? Bunnies. Okay. We're we're yes, very much so. Eggs, bunnies. What else when you think of Easter? Candy. Candy. Okay. <laughs> Eggs, bunnies, candy. <laughs> now let's remember we're in a, we're in a church now. So what else? But those are great answers. That's y'all are being honest, and I appreciate that. What do you think of when you think of Easter? I wasn't really listening, but did anyone say peeps? Peeps? Thank, thank you. I would have hated for us to go through this without mentioning peeps. Thank you, Trey. Clemens. All right, for what about from a biblical perspective? What do you think of when you think of Easter? We used to always sing the uh, low in the grave he lay song every Easter Sunday here. Okay. Okay, so low in the grave he lay. You think of that song? I, I like that one. Good bass part. What are the biblical events of Easter? Resurrection. There you go. Okay, so there happens to be a resurrection. Thank you. Um, what else? What's, what's associated with those few days? <clears throat> what would happen before the resurrection, would you say? Uh, the cross. The cross. Okay, great. That's our series right now. So as we lead to Easter, we start with the cross. Um, yeah, okay. So I didn't expect the, the, the swath of uh, candy-related and egg-related answers, but that's great. Um, the point I was going to make is I feel like when I think of Easter, I think of three days that happened around 80-30, okay? Um, that's sort of what my mind goes to. Not that I don't think about eggs and ham and peeps. I love peeps. They're, they're great. Um, but that I think I focus on just three days in history. Is that fair when you think of Easter from a Christian perspective? Okay. The, the point that I'm making, and I think the point of this, this concert helping kind of shape the songs that we picked, and a little bit about what we're talking about today, is that Easter doesn't just start in AD 30, like a week before when, when Jesus rides in triumphantly into Jerusalem. That's not when Easter really starts. And of course, that's the event that took place. But Easter really starts with God's creation. Okay, so Easter and the events of Easter and certainly the gospel, it begins and it starts with God at a point in history creating this universe, filling it with people in his image, 
that then go on to bring about Jesus so that he could save us, okay? So I'm not trying to drop the serious hammer on you, but that's really what Easter, Easter should not just be like one thing, you know, resurrection, crucifixion. Um, it's, it's a lot bigger than that. Um, which kind of leads us into this question of why are we looking at the Old Testament? Um, for, for some of you, it may not be a question at all. You may be excited that we're studying the Old Testament. I don't know. It does seem, and you might agree with me, that we don't study it as often, at least as I feel like I did in elementary or even in junior high. It seems like we've kind of gotten away from the Old Testament. I don't know if you kind of have a reason in your mind for why that might be. Um, I think that it's maybe this sort of tendency for us to characterize ourselves as sort of red-letter Christians or that we, we see more value maybe in the teachings of Jesus than in the Old Testament. Certainly the Old Testament is kind of difficult at times. There's a lot of really tough passages, things that we kind of, sort of like people in your family that you don't bring up first. You don't bring up your uncle that's in prison you know, for his fifth time. I mean, you kind of like, leave him over to the side. And in some ways, I think the Old Testament is like that, okay? But what I think that that does when we're only about the New Testament is, is it misunderstands God's nature. If we think of God as being too harsh, and kind of one way to look at this, and there was a guy I went to college with that would say this, is that, you know, I don't have a problem with Jesus. Like, I, Jesus is a cool guy, but it, God is the one that I struggle with. Um, and I think that really misunderstands the nature of God, misunderstands who Jesus is. And I've been reading through Matthew, uh, trying to get through the Bible this year. And if you read Matthew, Jesus is not always a nice guy. He's not only ever about love and peace. He's really, at certain times, you could almost characterize him as a little bit of a jerk. I mean, he's, he's kind of mean. Um, but he's mean to people who are hypocrites. He's mean to Pharisees. He's mean to the kind of people that, as he says, you know, on the outside, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. I mean, he tells that to people. So what if, you know, what if, if Eric Gentry came up to me and told me that? Ooh, my feelings would be hurt. I'd be complaining to the elders, right? Um, so that, that, I think it misunderstands how uh, God and Jesus are linked and also how the Old Testament and New Testament are linked, okay? And one's not more important than the other, let's say. Um, Jesus is also, the other reason why we'd look at this and why we'd say the Old Testament is that Jesus is linked, obviously, to Abraham. And so you look at Matthew 1, 1, and I remember, you know, people talking about with, with the New Testament, it's like, why does it start with this boring genealogy? And I've heard like stand-up comedians talking about, so I was in a hotel, it's like, I'm gonna read the Bible, I'm gonna see what it's about. So I, I turn over to Matthew 1, and it's all these names, you know, and kind of making fun of it. And I'll be honest, it's probably not the most exciting way, you know, it's, it's not Charles Dickens starting a tale of two cities, you know, it's, it's not this like great, you know, opening monologue, it's, it's kind of boring. And it starts with, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's boring to us because we're not Jews, we didn't grow up and this book was not written for us as an audience. To them, what it's saying is, is that Jesus, this Messiah, this Savior that we've prophesied about for thousands of years, he started with Abraham, who's the father of those people, okay? And so it is linked, and we're going to be talking about Abraham today. Um, so God makes a covenant with Abraham that is fulfilled through Jesus. And so when we look at Easter again, like this is linked to Abraham in the Old Testament. Um, it's also part of the story. So I get like, and I'm not perfect in this way. I mean, I'm reading the Bible this year. That's my goal. And I'm just reading the New Testament. So I'm obviously guilty of kind of it's hard to get through the Old Testament. There's some stuff that's tough, like I said, but um, it's part of the story. So when a new Star Wars movie comes out or when a new Marvel movie comes out, what do people do, a lot of them? They watch all the old ones. They go back and they watch, you know, all of them, even like the ones that maybe aren't that great. Well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to push through episodes one, two, and three. I won't enjoy it, but I've got to get through it. I'm going to watch Incredible Hulk. I mean, I know it's pretty lame, but I'm going to watch it, okay? 
Uh, they're actually doing, I saw at a movie theater, they're doing like a marathon. You can watch like, I think it's 12 of the Marvel movies. I think there's like 16 or something right before you watch uh, the, the new Avengers. Well, who wants to do that? I think it was like 75 bucks. I guess you can come and go. I have no idea. Um, you've obviously got to come and go to the bathroom, but you, you can, I guess, see some of them. I don't know. I don't know who would do that. It'd be pretty crazy. But it would be kind of sad that if we really feel very strongly about the New Testament and this story, that we only know a part of it, okay? That we only just, we jump in at season five, and uh, who cares about the first four seasons, you know? It just doesn't make sense. All right, so I want to review a little bit of what, what David talked about last week. If you weren't here for David's lesson, it was really great. The, the podcast is always there if you want to listen to it. And uh, I'm just going to kind of hit the high points. And so when we talk about the Torah, that's what this series is. We're doing seven weeks on the Torah. Scott's doing the first half of Exodus next week. And then someone else is going to do the other half of Exodus. We don't know. We'll see. And then we're going to do, obviously, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy after that. So those are the books. And they're known as the books of Moses. We think he wrote it, at least some portion of it. And it is Hebrew for law. It also can mean instruction. Okay, so you'll hear these called the books of law. You also hear it called the Pentateuch, which I think is just a fancy way for saying it's the first five books, basically. Um, And David said this, is that it contains narrative with episodes of law giving, but in the broader sense, it can all be seen as instruction. It teaches as much through the history it tells as by the law it gives. Okay, and so the reason we're doing this is really just, honestly, we've not done the Old Testament in a while. We felt like it'd be kind of nice to give a real zoomed out view of the first five books. All right, so he also talked about this, which for me is really interesting. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but when I think of Genesis 1, my mind immediately goes to creation. My mind immediately goes to sort of scientific questions. And I think that's just a result of the perspective that I have, um, being a science person and having studied it a lot. I think David made a great point is that it's not the most important part about Genesis, okay? And we will not be talking about science today. Um, I've I've gotten into the history section, Scott's section. So, um, but he says this, he says that all Holy Scripture is authoritative and true in what it teaches. He also said that if apparent conflict between science and Scripture exists, there are three possibilities. It could be that our understanding of science is incorrect. This is, I mean, to assume that we've got science figured out right now is is pretty stupid. I mean, a hundred years ago, it was completely different. Um, Our understanding of Scripture is incorrect. To also assume that we understand Scripture perfectly is pretty stupid, pretty silly. Um, And maybe there's just a resolution that we're unable to discern. And so I think if if things are not clear and if we're not sure, well, were these literal days or did did this really happen? If I add up all these genealogies, is this really this many thousand years ago? And if a scientist finds this artifact that they say is 28,000 years, how do I I render that or how do I remedy that? Um, I think there's some element of, well, maybe our science is bad. Maybe our understanding of scripture is bad. Or maybe there's something else that we just can't comprehend. Um, And ultimately, this is what I like the most of what he said, is is that uh, Genesis is teaching things that are much more important than science. Genesis is not a science textbook. Um, I'm not trying to take away from Genesis, but I don't think Genesis is trying to to be about how creation worked exactly. Okay, I don't think it's an equation. All right, so here's a way of looking at these different sections. And so we did 1 through 11, and you can see on those little posters that the whole left side is 1 through 11. The The right side, rather, is 12 through 50. And so on the left side, we have God and the whole world. And so in a sense, 1 through 11 is zoomed out. We we go through a lot more in 1 through 11 than we'll get through in 12 through 50. 12 through 50, we literally look at four different men and their families in all those chapters. 1 through 11 goes through like hundreds of years and dozens and dozens of men. Um, And the takeaway point is that God makes a good world for humanity. God creates us. He has a plan for us, and it starts in the garden. 
But the human sin and ruin of God's world is what we see in 3 through 11. David also said this, which I think is great, is, is that the story of Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of man trying to define good and evil for themselves, and then the downward spiral that follows. And I think we see that now. I think we have a place and time where morality is subjective and that we're defining for ourselves what's good for ourselves. What brings about, about human flourishing in our minds subjectively is what we see as good and evil, or sorry, good rather, um, but that's not always consistent. And then we look at 12 through 50, and basically, like I said, you, it's, it's different. It's very zoomed in. Now we're going to see four different men known as the patriarchs, and this is God and Abraham's family. So we'll look at that. Here were his takeaway, his themes from these chapters, and we'll do themes for 12 through 50, but uh, basically that God is our creator. Humanity possesses the imago Dei, which is a fancy word for the image of God. So we're made all in the image of God, every one of us. Human sin leads to separation. And then Yahweh God responds to human sin. He brings justice on rebellion and he gives grace in the midst of sin. Okay, so here is this again. So this left side is kind of what we talked about. This right side is what we're going to talk about today. My pointer doesn't work, but what you'll see this kind of top set of rows where we're looking at these patriarchs, what you'll see is, is that Abraham and his sons repeatedly fail. All right, they mess up over and over and over. And you probably know a lot of these stories. We'll look at them. But what's also true is that God is still faithful to rescue and bless his people. So it's sort of like one of these things that, you know, you have someone that you love, and in this sense it's God and his people who he created in his image. You love them enough to promise that you'll do something for them. And even if they don't keep at their side of the bargain, you're still faithful to that promise. Okay, we've all been in that spot where someone's kind of done you wrong, but you promise to do something, you do it anyway. It's an honorable thing to do. And that's what we see out of God. So I'm going to go ahead and watch this little five-minute video. This is on this section. This is, again, from this Bible Project thing. It's free. The thing I'd recommend, really, is, is that now that we're done with these posters, take them home. Go through this with your kids. We, we kind of went through it with Charlie. Obviously, if your kid's like six months old. Just wait. It's okay. Uh, but if they're of any age, they can kind of comprehend. And it doesn't have to be kids. If you have kids, like, go through it yourself or with friends. I think it's really great to kind of go through this again in a very zoomed out way to kind of understand what the point of Genesis is. But we'll watch this video. If you're listening to this podcast, you can go watch it on YouTube. It's the Bible Project, Genesis 12 through 20. Okay, so I love those videos. Sorry the sound was like that. I don't know what's going on, but I can't control that, so it's okay. Um, let's look at real quickly, and so you can see again on that little poster you got, you can sort of follow the steps as they go through that video, and we're going to look at a few key themes from these chapters, okay? So the first one is something that David actually mentioned last week, and, I, and he said that this is sort of the key verse or the key concept of all of Genesis, and I think this is really um, the verse that sort of prophesies really, uh, you know, Israelites becoming the people through which Jesus, uh, you know, comes, let's say. But it's Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and it says this. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Right, so this is the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, the people of Israel. Um, this is also the promises that he makes. There's a lot of different promises that he makes that he ends up keeping. And I think keep in mind, too, that Abraham was not some special person. Abraham, uh, you know, I think he was, maybe he's wealthy. I mean, he's, but aside from that, he was just a pagan guy kind of living in, in the Middle East. And so there's like nothing like in particularly special about him at that time in his life. And yet God made this promise to him. And obviously God had a bigger plan for all of this. 
what we um, what we learn is, is that in Exodus 19, uh, we learn that Israel is a kingdom of priests, and so we'll get into that But when we get into Exodus. We also see in Isaiah and Psalm that this promise will be fulfilled in the Messianic kingdom. Okay, so there's a lot more to this than just this, but this is kind of where it starts, okay? Um, so there's also two recurring themes. I talked about this. But the first one is that Abraham and his sons fail over and over and over, which is really the story of the Bible in general. Um, not just the first five books and not just the patriarchs, but that's just kind of humans. Uh, so that's kind of humanity, I guess. And so as we fail, and as we'll see in this section, is that as they fail, God is still faithful to this promise, to this covenant. Okay, so God could very easily, when we'll see some of the things that Jacob did, the really terrible things, God could have said, you know what, I think I picked wrong. I think I'm going to pick someone else. You're a horrible person, but he didn't do that, okay? And then lastly, this. It's something I'll call present suffering and future glory, and I think it's more accurately something that Paul calls this, and we'll look at it in Romans 8 later. But it's this verse, and they show this in, in the video. They say that this is kind of the verse that really speaks to all of Genesis. So between Genesis 12 and Genesis 50, I think this is sort of the point of all this, is that you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so this was Joseph speaking to his family that had sold him into slavery, that had abandoned him, and yet it was because of that that Joseph was now able to save them because Egypt had grain and, you know, they would have starved otherwise. And so it was the sort of thing that, you know, what to us in the current moment might seem really bad is part of God's providence, okay, to provide for us. All right, so let's look at each character kind of in turn. And so we're going to start with Abraham. And I'm going to read a little bit just like from Wikipedia just to catch you up. If you don't know who Abraham is or if you've forgotten, we'll just read like a quick summary. Um, Abraham was called by God to leave the house of his father. Does anyone know the father of Abraham? A little Sunday school trivia. Very good. That's why you're an elder. That's why you teach children. Um, it's great. And... Uh, <laughs> He was at, I don't even know if I would have gotten that right. It's very good. Uh, he was asked to, to leave the house of his father, Terah, and settle in the land originally given to Canaan, uh, but which God now promises to Abraham and his offspring. So there are a lot of stories that we won't get into, and there's like so many chapters. Abraham is chapters 12 through 25a, and there's a lot of great stories there and a lot of weird stories and a lot of difficult stories there. Uh, things like you know his nephew Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, Sarah and Hagar, or Hagar, Hagar. Hagar, sorry, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and uh, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. There was a game called Final Fight, and there was a guy named Hagar. That's what was in my mind. He's a big guy with on a shirt, and he'd pile drive people. Anybody ever play that? Nope. Okay. All right, you should go play it. It's a great game. My brother would know what I was talking about. Um, so let's look at what were Abraham's failures, okay? And so Abraham, I, I think the video did a good job of saying this, but let's repeat them. This is terrible. He lied about Sarah. He said Sarah was his sister, which in fact she was kind of his sister like once or twice removed, so that's a whole other story. Um, but it, two different times, and I guess Sarah was a, a real babe because wherever they ended up, like these guys wanted her, like these like leaders like wanted her. And Abraham wasn't like, well, she's my wife. He's like, she's my sister. <laughs> and so he like kind of gave her to these men, which is really strange, right? And then even worse is like, it wasn't enough that he lied. He then like brought curses on these men by having done that. And so, and then of course, like God forgave them after Abraham forgave them and all this kind of stuff. But what a, what a, like, what a wiener. Like, I mean, he's just kind of 
You know, just like, what kind of guy does that? So he did that to his wife and also to himself. It's like kind of a weird situation. Um, he also then later, God told him that he was going to make his nations many. And so he had this idea. Well, it wasn't even his idea. It was Sarah's idea that he would sleep with Sarah's handmaiden because he did not believe that Sarah could produce a child. She laughed. You may remember that. So then the child she ultimately had, Isaac, was named. Uh, she laughed, I think. Um, but... Uh, so he slept with this handmaid, and it created all these sort of issues. And so if you remember the story, the child they had was Ishmael. And then, uh, of course, Sarah hated Ishmael, and so they sent them away, and Ishmael almost died. And anyway, so that started a whole other nation of people, which ultimately came back to, to fight the Israelites and so on and so forth. So it created all this strife. So lots of really deep failures, a really deeply flawed person. Now, of course, God remained faithful on this. Despite all these failures, uh, God had made a covenant promise with Abraham, and he kept that. And this promise, again, it had a lot of components. Promised multiple descendants, fame, divine protection, and that Abraham, through his descendants, would be a blessing to all people. Which, again, as we connect this to the gospel, what is that blessing? Well, it's Jesus. Okay, so through Abraham came that. Now, a couple of things I want to talk about that were interesting to me. Of course, you came this morning hoping that we'd speak about circumcision, so we're going to. Um, but as I read through these things, there's certain things that just jump out at me. And one of those is, why in the world was circumcision the sign of this covenant? Because it's weird. And so you have a story of, a, I believe, a 90-year-old Abraham who is told to circumcise himself as a sign of this covenant. So, you know, just even just sort of thinking about that, it really seems pretty absurd, I think. Um, so I was kind of like looking up and reading about it is why, why was circumcision chosen? Now, I could ask you guys, I'm kind of running behind on time, so I probably won't, but kind of why you think it was circumcision. I think there's a couple things that come to mind, but I'll go through a few options. The first is, is that it was this distinguishing characteristic. So I've always heard this pretty much my whole life. I don't know if it's true, and we'll talk about that very quickly, but at that time there were public baths, and so it would have been impossible to hide the fact that you were circumcised, okay? Um, and so the problem with that is, is that history tells us, whether you believe it or not, that other groups, other um, countries did the same thing at the same time. And so apparently people in Syria, Phoenicia, and Egypt, they, they also did circumcision. Uh, they said it was a little different. I don't know what that means, but um, that it maybe wasn't a, a truly distinguishing characteristic. I do think a lot of what we'll see in the rest of the Torah there are things that were intentionally made so that the Israelites could be different, so they could be easily distinguished, so they could be uniform, so that during their time in Egypt and ultimately Babylon, that they could remain a unified people so that Jesus could come through them. But I don't know if circumcision is really that. The other one is this idea of shedding of blood, and so for a sacrifice, biblically, to, to, to count, um, it needed to have the shedding of blood. So we see that, obviously, in the crucifixion. We see that in all the sacrifices and the blood that's rubbed on the altar and all this kind of stuff that we'll get into more. Um, but the idea that maybe God required blood is a sign of the covenant. And so there is a sort of weird thing with circumcision where it's sort of like, I'm going to give you these blessings, but you're going to have to, it's sort of like getting in shape. There's no beauty without pain. It's like you're going to have to kind of go through, you know, some pain, and you're going to have to really prove to me that you want this, sort of, some of that. I really, though, think it's this. It's this last thing that it is a sign of the covenant so that they could remember the covenant, okay? And I don't think I'd heard this as much as I've heard uh, that first one, the one about the distinguishing characteristic, but I think keep this in mind. So Abraham was 90 before he was circumcised, and it wasn't until he was circumcised that they were able to produce a child. Okay, so the entire household of Abraham was forced to be circumcised, all the men, and so they probably at that point in time were like, why are we doing this? This is very strange. I kind of wish I wasn't of the household of Abraham. I've got this friend 
he's in the household of this other guy and like they didn't have to do this like what are we doing uh, but maybe the pay was good I don't know um, and so they did it and this is what Michael Heiser I read an article by him he said this I'll just read it as he says uh, everyone in Abraham's household witnessed the miracle of Isaac's birth this happened after the circumcision from that point on every male understood why they had been circumcised their entire race their very existence began with a miraculous act of God Every woman was reminded of this when she had sexual relations with her Israelite husband and when her sons were circumcised. Circumcision was a visible, continuous reminder that Israel owed its existence to Yahweh, who created them out of nothing. Okay, so take that from what it's worth. Um, I think that's maybe why circumcision was what it was. It was to remind them continuously of this covenant. Okay, it was a really clear way of reminding them. All right, so then there's also this idea, I don't know if I have a slide for it, nope, of circumcision and baptism. So let me just ask you this. In your mind, are those two connected, and do you see any similarities between circumcision and baptism? I realize it may not be a fair question because I've been able to think about it, but um, what, what certain things, even just a couple, that if you were forced to say, well, how could you compare circumcision and baptism, what things do you see in similar between the two? Very good. Yeah, but, but both signs of a covenant. Exactly. I mean, the way you explain it, like the beginning of new life. <clears throat> yeah, that's good. Both public. Okay, in some sense. Right. Okay. They're both signs of faith. Okay. Uh, in faith, it's something that you do. Signs of the covenant is exactly right. Uh, Paul talks about it in Colossians 2, 10 through 12. He says... In Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, so what Paul is saying of baptism is a sort of a new circumcision. Okay, so circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, Baptism is, in some sense, a sign of the new covenant, okay? Obviously, there's more towards to baptism. It includes the Holy Spirit and things like that, but there is certainly a, a comparison there. All right, so that's all I will say about circumcision this morning. You can, sorry, to make you uncomfortable. All right, so we're going to look at now Isaac and Jacob. We're first going to look at, at Isaac, but I want to talk a little bit about Isaac. He's kind of the wild card in all this because Isaac is the one that kind of doesn't really screw up that much. He's like kind of like the good one. All right, so the rest of them do some pretty terrible stuff. Isaac's, he's just okay, you know? Um, and so obviously he was born into a lot of weirdness. He was, I mean, his parents were old. I think that, like, I always think of that, like, oh, my parents are so old, and his parents were 90, you know? It's like, oh, very old. Um, and, uh, of course, he, he marries Rebecca, and then he has Jacob and Esau. Um, but I want to ask this question of, he also lived the longest, and so he lived to 180 so maybe because he was like a pretty good guy, he got to live a little longer. I don't know. But um, there's this question that's really interesting, and this could be a sermon in and of itself, but it's, a, it's an interesting question and idea. It's this idea of where is the lamb uh, or where is the sacrifice? And so I was meeting with, uh, we were over at Dr. J.B. Selectman's house. He, he works with me, great guy, and he preaches some at Harvest, but uh, he was bringing this point up, and I looked into it, and it was really great. So kind of follow me here with this. Uh, what he kind of said and what you sort of see is there's this narrative of a lamb that is going to be provided by God or a sacrifice. And there's almost this like groaning in the Old Testament for this sacrifice 
that will replace all these sacrifices they have to do. And so the way the Old Testament was, if you were sinning, you'd have to do a sacrifice for it. And if you sinned again, well, you'd have to do another sacrifice. It's kind of this continuous thing that was never quite good enough. So there's almost this like prophecy or this um, hope towards a sacrifice that would, would kind of beat out all those sacrifices. And we know what that is, but anyway. So what we'll see uh, in Genesis 3, and we talked about it last week a little bit, is it foreshadows a sacrifice. It talks about a wounded victor that will defeat evil at, at its source. It will crush the head of the snake, if you remember that. So it says the snake will bite the heel, but that the foot will crush it. And that foreshadows Jesus, meaning that he was crucified. In that sense, Satan kind of bit his heel, but that obviously Jesus crushed the head of the snake in doing that. Um, so that foreshadows that. Um, again, in the Old Testament, there's just an air of anticipation, you could say, for this sacrifice that is to come or this lamb that is to come. Now, of course, as we get into this section, we look at Genesis 22, and we know the story, and it's a really difficult story, especially as a parent where Abraham is told to take Isaac up on a mountain and, and kill him on an altar, right? And it goes without saying, that would make me very uncomfortable if I was told to take Charlie up on a mountain and sacrifice him. Um, I don't know that I would be faithful to that. Um, Genesis 22, 7 says, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, he said, yes, son, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? All right, so we know that story. And so he kind of went to this point where he's got the knife raised and he stopped. And then, of course, there's a ram, all right, so a lamb, that's provided. So in verse 13, it's there kind of in the thicket, and they later name that mountain the Lord will provide. So this idea of where is the lamb is kind of this con continuous thing. Where is the sacrifice? And the idea is, is that the Lord will provide that sacrifice at the right time, okay? So that's a big theme throughout all this. Now, a little bit more interestingly, kind of getting into the New Testament, you start to see some mirrors of these same themes. And so you have John the Baptist in John 1. Uh, he says that the Lamb is here. In John 1, 29, he says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, so this is that same kind of idea, that they're looking for a Lamb, and, and here it is. Um, here's some other interesting stuff. I know I'm throwing a lot out at you, but uh, this is interesting. In this same section, Genesis 22, is the first time the word love is used in the Old Testament. So it's in verse 2. It says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Um, does that thing, this take your son, your only son, whom you love, does that remind you of anything in the New Testament? My mom's shaking her head. What, is it, what does it remind you of? Yeah. yeah, it's almost exactly the same thing as what you see in Matthew 3 when Jesus is being baptized and this dove comes out and it speaks and it's the voice of God and he says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Um, and then of course in all of this, this is the obvious one, but Jesus is on, sorry, rather Isaac is on a mountain about to be sacrificed and then a lamb steps in. It's the same thing we think of the mountain that Jesus was, was sacrificed on. And so in that sense, he stepped in for us. He was the lamb, he was a sacrifice that we've been anticipating. All right, and to bring this completely home, uh, would somebody open Hebrews 11 for me? Martha, you want to read this? I don't mean to. Okay, uh, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. <laughs> 17 through 19, yep. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. All right, so that's kind of the key little line there, is, is that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead. Okay, so that's said in the Old Testament, well, that's Hebrews of the Old Testament, um, that he had that amount of faith. So of course, again, there's Jesus written all over this, okay? So, um, you know, obviously Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So um, pretty cool to find that stuff as you're reading through these stories. Okay, so let's look at uh, Isaac and Jacob again, these sort of repetitive themes. We sort of know Jacob. We know his story. He was later given the name Israel, son of Isaac and Rebekah. He was the younger twin brother of Esau. Um, and then, of course, we'll get into he deceived his father. He had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and he also had children with uh, Bilhah and Zip, Zip, Zilpah. I should have asked that question. Would you have known that? You may have. We'll never know. Um, so what are Isaac's failures? Like I said earlier, he wasn't really that bad, but what are Jacob's failures? Before I tell you, you should know, does anyone know what Jacob's name means? Does anyone remember this? Okay, it means deceiver. That's like literally his name. So like not, not a, you know, it's not a good name. He could, he could lead a gang with a name like that, you know, deceiver. It actually means heel grabber. So he grabbed the heel of, of Esau on his way out. And uh, so he's a deceiver. So he's always grabbing at heels, as it were. Um, and so you probably know this, but he steals Esau's birthright and blessing uh, by deceiving his old blind father. That's something to be proud of. Um, he also uh, ends up marrying four wives, even though he really only loves one of them, which creates a lot of problems, okay? So he loves Rachel. Now, ironically, though, he does get kind of deceived by his uh, father-in-law, Laban, which is kind of interesting. So he kind of gets a little bit of a taste of his own medicine, which does humble him. And so in his old age, he does kind of come around. He blesses his sons, and, and everything's kind of made right, ultimately, in Egypt. Um, and so then how was God faithful despite Jacob's failures? Again, we look at the failures of the sons of Abraham, and we look at God's faithfulness. And, and of course, there is this weird story where Jacob wrestles with God. And then God decides to call him Israel and promises this covenant to him. Okay, so we won't get into all that story. I do think it is interesting that in Hebrews 11, so Hebrews 11 is the Faith Hall of Fame that we, you probably have studied before, and it talks about all these characters. You can go read it later. But it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now this could be something else, but I read a little commentary on the idea that Jacob, at his old age, was still walking with a staff, it actually talks about when he wrestles with uh, the angel or with God that he kind of like breaks his hip or breaks his leg. And so some people kind of say, well, he was still walking on the staff as a reminder of that, that wrestling that he did or that, that, that fight or that struggle, as it were. So, and maybe he was just an old guy. I think he was like in his hundreds. So maybe he just needed a staff. Um, all right, so let's real quickly get into Jacob's sons. So if you don't know Jacob's sons, now this would really be good. If you could name all of Jacob's sons, I'd be very impressed. We don't have time. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And then don't forget his daughter, Dinah. Um, so he had all those. Uh, and of course, it was Joseph and Benjamin that were the sons of Rachel. Okay, those, so those are the two that he loved the most, Joseph the most of all. Uh, what were Jacob's sons' failures? Well, some of their failure was thanks to Jacob, because Jacob really screwed up. He was probably the worst of all of them. So since he showed favoritism, they naturally had this enmity among one another, um, and so they did not like each other um, because of Rachel. And then, of course, they pretended to kill Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. It's about as bad as it gets. My brother and I fought a lot. He never sold me into slavery. Okay, so that's pretty good. Um, and then despite Jacob's son's failures, of course, it's God that he orchestrates 
you know, Joseph being able to get out of prison, and then ultimately Joseph becomes the second in command in Egypt. That's amazing. And that because of that, then he's able to save his brothers, okay? Which is, again, amazing. Probably my favorite section of Genesis, this section, is Joseph. I think he's the one, like, if you're having to pick, like, well, who's the best Old Testament character? I kind of think it might be Joseph. He's, like, maybe the only one that doesn't do anything super bonehead. Um, And even David, Solomon, like, the prophets. I mean, there's really, like, very few that are, like, good people, okay? Um, Maybe there's one of those kings, like the little seven-year-old king that found the scripture, like, what's his name? The J. Maybe he was a good guy. Maybe there's like three good guys, and they should all hang out together in heaven. But Joseph, I think, is one of them. And so really great stories there. Um, And so then we talked about this, and we're sort of wrapping up here. We talked about this first, and this is what Joseph says, is that you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And I think this is really what the Bible is about. Okay, this is what certainly the Old Testament, certainly the section is about, is this idea of present suffering and future glory. I do want to read really quickly, and we've got probably three minutes left. Sorry, I'm going a little over. Uh, from Romans 8, if you want to turn there and you kind of follow along, Romans 8, 18 through 31, where this, this idea is really hit home, and then we'll, then we'll wrap up. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. 8, 18 through 31 from Romans. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager anticipation of the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of those who subjected it. That's what we're talking about. Okay, these are those people. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we will wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's just like this verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All right, so I know there's a lot there, but there's a lot, obviously, that mirrors what we're talking about. Two discussion questions that we don't have time for are these, and so you can kind of take these with you, is just like what we see in Genesis 12 through 50, what are the ways in which you see yourself consistently failing? What are the ways that you see yourself consistently sinning or messing things up in your life with your friends and with your family? Okay, what are the decisions you consistently make that create strife for you? Okay, what are those things? And I think the turn on that is, is how has God been faithful despite your repeated failures? Okay, so just like we see in Genesis, how do you fail over and over and over, and then how is God still faithful to his promises to you? All right, and so this, in in conclusion, is is how, uh, sorry, as we reflect on Easter in the coming weeks, I want us to remember that Easter is not just about, obviously, peeps and ham and and hanging out at lunch with your family, but it's also not just about Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. 
It's about the entire story of God and his people, okay? People that were created in his image, all right? And God has a plan for us. Despite our failures that are over and over, he's faithful to his promises. And this is the important thing, is that we can say, well, I haven't seen the fruits of these promises. Like, yeah, I'm failing, but how is God, you know, faithful to these promises? Well, as it says, we may not see the fruit of these promises in this life, but there is a second life to come, okay? And I'll follow, uh, finish up with this verse from Hebrews 11. It says, this is Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, all these people, and these are the patriarchs he's talking about, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who saw such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And my takeaway of that is, is that if we are focused on the world in which we live currently and presently, we will never receive the promises that God offers us. All right, so thank you, Kyle, for teaching on that. Um, obviously, I tried to get a whole lot into 40 minutes with that, and you try and cover chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis and see how, how you can do with it. Uh, it's just a lot. Um, so there's a lot more, obviously, to those stories and to that book. And so I really, you know, invite you to, to read through Genesis. It's the sort of thing that a lot of Christians, when they read the Bible, myself included, well, sometimes we start at the New Testament, but there is just a really wealth of stories and just deep, deep theology and just the beauty of God's creation at work in the stories of the Torah and Genesis, namely. We will be back next week. Scott Frizzell will be with us teaching the first part of Exodus. He's got some really awesome stuff there. So we'll start to talk about Moses and his story. We'll get into Pharaoh and the bondage and the slavery that the Israelites find themselves in and also uh, the plagues and some other really cool stuff. And so Scott is a history teacher and so this is right up his alley. I know he's very excited to teach this and even teaches to, uh, to kids and has for a long time on these topics. And so he's really excited. I'm excited to listen to him. So if you're out there and you're listening, if you're in the Memphis area, please come visit us. We'd love to see you every Sunday here at Highland Church of Christ in Cordova. We meet at 10 a.m. It's the Highland Bridge Builders class. If not, and if you're somewhere else and you get something out of listening to these podcasts, would love it if you let me know. My name's Kyle Fagala. You can find me on Facebook. It really mean the world to me if you were to send me a message and let me know that you've been listening to it. Uh, we do have people out there. We've got, I think, something like 1,400 listens total for the last nine months we've done this. It's not amazing. It's not breaking records, but it does mean that there are people out there listening to this and working through God's Word together with us as we do that and as we try to be faithful to His Word and His lessons for us today. Hope you have a wonderful week. Hope it's a real blessing to you. We will see you next week on the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.